So uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're recording this show live at the Webby's in Cardiff, for those people that aren't listening here live. And I'm in front of an audience of, what are you, about 400 people? It's part of Geek Mental Health Week. So joining me to talk about various aspects of mental health and mental health uh, for generous guests. We're going to have writer, designer and educator, somebody that, I can't believe I said this about you. Um, the web review, <laughs> the web, the creative review described him as a William Morris for the digital age. <laughs> I'm going to have to bleep that one out. <laughs> Christopher Murphy, um, technical director of MUD, Cole Henley, writer, speaker, um, and web content person, really, Annette Baker, who never swears. Not ever. Not once. And, uh, and finally, just to, uh, to keep us all sane, hopefully. Editor of Counseling and Psychotherapy Research, counselor and lecturer in Psychodynamic Counseling at the University of Leicester, uh, Dr. Claire Simmons. That's who we're going to be talking to. I just want to explain a little bit, if I may, about uh, how we got started. It began as a simple idea, really, to begin conversations around the web on blogs and magazines and on podcasts and at events like this, the web is, and Milton Keynes uh, Geek Night, um, to encourage people really to share their experiences of mental health issues and just to see whether those conversations can lead to others about how we can help people, specifically in our own industry. And I've got to say, it's been a really incredible week, and it's not over yet. I've been really, really humbled by reading and listening to people share their emotional and sometimes really deeply personal experiences. I've actually had emails from people who they didn't want to share their stories publicly, um, but they wanted to tell them to, to someone, anyone even a complete stranger like me. And I've even had people phoning me up, which is very disconcerting. Um, and I've just been so incredibly pleased at the support for this week. And I want to talk about that and how we can maybe keep these conversations going with, uh, with my first guest, the brilliant Christopher Murphy. No one ever says nice things about me like that. Honestly. This is this is the best spot because we can actually just, just relax. sit and get back. Where's, there's no footstool. Can you is that is this mic working? Yeah. I think so. Awesome. There's nowhere to put my have you seen my new red Do you want boots? me to like lie like like the gimp or something? What? <laughs> just uh, not at, not in public. At home is fine, Chris. But so Let's talk about our reactions, really, to how this week's gone, because you and I have been talking about this for well, several months now. Yeah. Well, we're doing this together. Um, I've been amazed at the, the reaction to this, because uh, uh, at one point, I think you think if you're going to start talking about mental health issues, which are kind of like private and people don't talk about that kind of stuff in public, uh, because it's embarrassing, and then you mention something and people are like, oh my God, what did I talk to this guy? He's a crazy person. Um, you know, but I've been really amazed at the response. It's been fantastic. It's clear that we're working in an with uh, in this audience and and just in this industry, there are a lot of people who are really kind of like struggling to keep up, and the pace of change is very fast. And 
you know, and there's a lot of empathy out there for the stories that have been shared. Well, MK Geek Night was on Tuesday, and a couple of our guests spoke there as well, uh, Claire and Cole, so we can talk about that a little bit later on. But I haven't listened to it yet, but the audio for those talks are now online. So uh, I'll post the links in the, the show notes and check out the uh, Geek Mental Help yeah. hashtag because there have been There's a lot a of great of reaction to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly, I think Gavin Elliott gave a, a very powerful talk, mm-hmm. which I haven't listened to yet, but the reaction has been phenomenal. Yeah, certainly heard that. I think it's important to stress, again, and I might say this several times throughout our session, that you know we're not mental health professionals. You know, you and I and, and other people, um, apart from Claire, who's more qualified than all of us. Um, Definitely. We're not, we're not professionals. We're just amateurs. We're not, uh, you can take what we say with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I do think that it's incredibly valuable that even though we may not be and other people may not be professionals, um, that sharing experiences can be incredibly important. And one of the things that I've learned this week is how important it is that when something's been said, other people go, shit, that's exactly how I feel. I didn't know that other people felt that way. I thought that it was only me. Yeah. For the most part, yeah, the, the, the reaction has been fantastic. And I think it's great that we're having this conversation because I think it makes other people kind of realize that they're not alone um, and that if they have some issues that, that... That's the other thing I think that's great about this community um, you know, when I was the William Morris for the digital age, uh, I was doing like a, I was running a record label and stuff. And then I got into the, into the web community and this is the, the most sharing community in the world. It really is. Um, and I, I remember working with a professor who joined us at, in Belfast and he said, uh, is there any way to stop view source? And I was kind of like, no. And he was kind of like, that's a real problem right there. And I was like, no, that is the beauty of it, yeah. you know? Uh, and also the fact that people help each other, you know, and I think that that has extended that kind of that that spirit of sharing has extended to this conversation. Yeah, I think it's been phenomenal. So let's talk about education, which is your area of expertise as well, um, and particularly working with young people and students, as you do. And I wouldn't say that this industry is a particularly challenging one from a working environment point of view. I mean, let's face it, you know, we make things on computers. Um, it could be a lot worse if we worked down the pit or built okay. ships yeah. or worked in a steel mill or something like that. Um, however, we do have uh, our challenges and we do have sometimes working, um, working arrangements, working environments, which might be detrimental to mental health. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. Mm. So when young people are coming into the industry or they're wanting to join the industry, uh, I think it's important to ask really, can you as a lecturer, can the staff at universities see the signs of potentially mental health problems um, early on for people? You know, can you can you spot people that might be prone to having these kind of issues? I think that, that comes back to the conversation we were having over lunch. I mean, you, you, I do believe that in education you get people who are like Sir, uh, Mr. Nolan, or people like Mr. Keating, who is a captain, my captain. You do get educators who are empathetic towards their students and who really care about their students much more than just teaching them a topic. And I, I do certainly sense that if I'm in a situation in a classroom, uh, be it 20 students or 100 students, 
you can kind of generally tell if someone's having a bit of a difficult time. And, and I think that your role as an educator or somebody who is supporting a young mind, and sometimes those young minds are quite old because they're returning to education, you know, your job is more than just going in and imparting knowledge. Your job is also kind of like, you know, supporting people. Um, I wouldn't say for a moment that I'm in any way uh, capable to advise people about mental health issues, uh, but I do think I could share some things I've done. Uh, and I, I suppose the other thing that I would do too, which is completely against the rules, is uh, give someone a hug every once in a while. You're not meant to do that as a lecturer because, you know, you could be invading someone's personal space. But sometimes if someone's crying, you know, it's like natural human instinct just to wrap your arms around them and say, it's all going to be okay. You know, so I think that lecturers can or educators can, you know, be aware that things are amiss and, and kind of in, in, do their best to help. Do you get training in any of these areas like you might, I suppose, get first aid training? No. Is that something that you think would be a good idea? Yeah, I think that probably wouldn't be a bad idea, to be honest with you, because you're dealing with people in a, sometimes in a fragile emotional state because they're perhaps under pressure and they're having to learn things and perhaps they're new to, they're new to it, to an environment where at school everything's delivered to, to kind of regularly set deadlines and suddenly you have to direct your own study and you have to be in charge of your, your work day. And I think some people find that a bit difficult, that transition. So I definitely think there should be something. Certainly in terms of spotting the signs, I think, and then potentially making sure that somebody sees what yeah. student help, uh, student support. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously a pressure on students to perform. I mean, there wasn't an art school when I went to art school. That never happened. We, tur we turned up at the beginning and they said, hello. And then they came back three years later and went, what did you do? <laughs> Great. Um, but there is a pressure. I wish it was like that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a pressure on, on students to perform. And, you know, I know because our son, you know, has yeah. just gone through university and got a, got a master's. But I think the other thing that we need to remember, we shouldn't forget, is that people put pressure on themselves too. Absolutely. And people put themselves under pressure to learn. I mean, how many people here actually got an education in the thing that they're doing? You know, most of us are self-learners, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part. I would say. Um, do you think that education about how to stay fit, healthy, mentally, physically, uh, while working in our industry should be something that you teach alongside programming or design? I think it probably should. Um, I mean, we would certainly, we're not just teaching programming and design. We're also, like I talked about earlier today, we're talking about like the whole mind, um, certainly in terms of my teaching philosophy, uh, which is like absolutely everything. Um, do we have any classes that cover that kind of thing? Not really, no. Uh, should we have some classes that cover that kind of thing? Probably yes. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one more thing to add to the list of things I need to do. <laughs> you know, I just think it's, potentially about preparing people for, you know, what working life is going to be like in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit surprised sometimes at how little um, some of the universities that I've worked with, and yours is different, I know, but uh, really prepare people in terms of, you know, what working experience is going to be like, or how to turn up for an interview, or what to put in a portfolio, and how to make sure that all of these things are right. But preparing people for actually, you know, what the stress of, what the stress of working life is going to be like. And as, as we'll talk about later on, I think, mental health issues, they're not simply limited to our industry. You know, it's 
Yeah, they absolutely. are routine, mm. you know, in the wider world. Um, so how, how much should we teach people about that? How much should we teach people about maintaining work-life balance? I think, we should, I think we should probably look at it more. Um, to be honest with you, it's only really something I've been thinking about for about 18 months because I was well 18 months ago. And so I'm now looking at work-life balance an awful lot more. Um, you know, there is a pressure, I think, in this industry, not just to do your job, but to also have side projects and mm-hmm. to, you know, so there, there's a kind of like inbuilt sense in this industry that, you know, you don't just do this thing. You also have to have these amazing side projects as well. Um, and, and, you know, if, if your peers, uh, whether that's in this room or whether that's in the classroom are doing incredible side projects, you know, you feel pressurized to do that too. Um, and I think we probably as an industry and also educating for that industry should perhaps put a little bit more emphasis on some side projects might just be life. It could be a nice side project, you know, yeah. having a walk in the park. It is, it is tricky. I mean, <laughs> I know that, you know, I've had a real crisis of confidence over the last few years because, you know, you see people doing different things. You see people launching amazing projects. Uh, you see people running successful businesses and from the outside, everything being fantastic. And you think, wow, you know, and you, it, it is very easy to compare yourself and see sometimes things moving on, you know, potentially think that you're not moving along with them. I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that the older you get doing this kind of stuff, the harder, well, for me anyway, um, you know, my son says to me, I say, oh, we need to check that in that book, uh, you know, and I have to look up my book that I wrote that teaches web design and I have to look it up and my son says to me, well, why are you looking that up in the book? I thought you wrote that. And I'm like, yeah, I've totally forgotten all of that. Yeah, well, we yeah. used to say, we used to say that the funny thing was, was that you, you needed to solve a CSS problem so you would Google it and find your own website. Yeah. That used to be yeah. funny. That hasn't happened to me for 10 years, by the way. There's there nothing go. that I ever wrote that can help me now, trust me. Yeah. I think that there's an intense pressure in the industry. Um, it, it, especially with young people coming through who just are amazing, you know. Uh, as an educator, I see that all the time. I, I see a lot of students who come through, and I think, you know, I think obviously they look up to me for, for advice and, and for me to help them and to train them. Uh, and I look at them and think, oh, my goodness, these guys are just totally leaving me for dust. <laughs> you know, it's a bit scary, you know. It's scary. So I want to keep things tight. I know everybody hasn't got all day, but um, stay with me. Because what I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce our next guest, which is our good friend. He's a technology, technical director at, uh, at MUD, which is one of my favorite small studios. And uh, he's also a recovering archaeologist, if there could be such a thing. So uh, please welcome Cole Henley. See, the other thing I like about you is, I, yeah, I know, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do a massage yeah. for you. On the purpose, Cal. This is not going to show up on radio. You realise that? <laughs> the other thing I really like about you is your taste in the colour of your shoes, mate. I think, I like a man who, who has a discerning <laughs> taste in red shoes. Me and clowns. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder, actually, I did wonder whether the yellow laces were a step too far. No, so they're not. Done. I'm going, uh, I'm going backwards and forwards on this. So you've been writing this week, um, not only about your wrestling with depression, uh, which is a mental health, uh, mental health, mental illness, oh, mental illness issue. I yes, can edit it out. out. Um, 
But you've also been writing about what I know many of us here and people listening are going to relate to, which is just how much the demands of modern technology, the stuff that, you know, we have to use for our jobs. I know other people have to use these things too, but, you know, we, we have to use these things for our jobs, how they can affect our state of mind. And I think it's fair to say we've been carrying around these devices. Mine's in my bag somewhere. Um, been carrying around these devices in our pockets now since, well, since really, what, 2006, seven first mm-hmm. iPhone? Um, which really kind of changed things for me, I know. I didn't have a mobile phone before that. I certainly didn't have something in my pocket that was, that was buzzing and demanding my attention the whole time as, as we do now. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to mm-hmm. talk about switching off, which is something that you've been writing about. Sure, yeah. Um, and also I want to talk about the fact that it's not just devices that demand our attention. It's because we have these devices that other people can send us messages that demand our attention as well. Um, and how difficult it may be to actually just disconnect and, and take care of ourselves. Can we talk about that? Yeah, bit? yeah, sure. And I think, um, I mean, Keir touched a lot of this on, on, in his talk earlier. Um, the landscape we occupy, and, and you know, uh, I spoke about this on Tuesday, that a lot of us are pioneers in this industry. I don't mean to say sort of in a flag-waving way, but we sort of perceive that we have to be at the bleeding edge of these things. So, again, like Keir said, sort of constantly lost signing up to new social networks and things. Um, uh, but it's, it, you know, it's been 25 years now, and we still sort of haven't wrestled. We still haven't made that leap, that cognitive leap to deal with these demands on our attention and having these things in our pocket. Um, I'm Terrible with email. If anyone's contacted me, I, I will reply at some point. Um, but you know, Twitter, everything. These things are all pervasive. Um, and but it's it, those are symptomatic of a much bigger problem, which is how, as you said, we compare ourselves to other people and how we we get terrified that the industry is going to run away if we don't keep up. I cannot imagine. Does anybody in the audience have a Samsung watch? Have a Samsung smartwatch. I can't see, but shout if you do. I'd love to have a look at one. Um, but I cannot imagine. Um, I mean, the phone is bad enough, but having something on your wrist which is constantly vibrating every time somebody tweets, Anna's probably smiling because you're wearing a pebble. Um, and one of the things that I did recently um, was to switch off all notifications. Um, I was in uh, IKEA doing what you do when you move into a new office, which is to buy a load of Ikea furniture on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, halfway through the the trip through the checkout, I had an email from a demanding client wanting stuff done on the middle of a Sunday afternoon. Um, Now, it's my own stupid fault for having my work email come through to my phone, but all of a sudden it made me realise, hang on a second, you know, you need to be concentrating on something else to actually just do your job. You, You cannot constantly be connected and thinking about these things. Yeah, there's something, um, I've seen this conversation come up and again throughout the week, and I talked about it on Tuesday. Um, The, it kind of ties back to the last talk in the sense that the web natively is is sort of a pull medium. You know, we go, we go and request stuff when we need it and it comes to us. And I remember certainly when RSS first came out, I was really excited because it meant I didn't have to go to different people's websites to get all the latest blogs, it would come to me. But that's, that, mental model or technological model has kind of taken over and the pushing is really dangerous. Mm. It's, um, I mean, you can opt out, but it's very hard to opt out. And, and it, again, like Keir said earlier, you know, that sense of 
I, I exactly the same thing. You know, the kids are wanting my attention. I go, no, but something really important is happening. There's a funny picture of David Cameron on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> and um, as important that is, it isn't more important than my children. And, and one of the things I sort of I spoke with um, Liz Elcott the other day about um, about phones and things. And I I've got into the habit now. I'm not taking my phone to bed. I'm still really bad around using the phone at house, but leaving that downstairs to charge it does make a massive amount of difference because then you're starting to sort of just break out of those habits but also you start to not be dependent like you know how many I don't wear a watch now um, I kind of have got so used to using my phone as a watch which then means you check the time which then means you go and do something else on your watch on your phone sorry um, and just those little things like using a an alarm a digital watch to wake you up in the morning and just leave your phone downstairs does you know it takes the load off a fair bit um, obviously it's only the start of the process but it also means you're not like first thing in the morning you know just trying to consume information how many of us are slaves to getting rid of the red dot on the phone I am so obsessively compulsive about not having if, there, if there's a red dot on those things then I have to clear it um, and sometimes you find yourself you know Sometimes I suppose when I'm, I should be thinking about something else, I should be doing something else, but something draws me to it. And I, I go in loops. Mm. I go in loops where it's Twitter and Instagram and Flickr and email and Twitter and Instagram and Flickr and email. And I'm literally constantly yeah. going around in circles and, you know, particularly late at night sometimes. I've tried to stop working late at night because I, I find myself going into these loops. Um, and all of a sudden you think, where did that hour go? Mm. And that, that, I mean, certainly if you, I, I can completely identify with that and as someone that has depression, um, it's those kind of moments you get sucked into, those habits that actually exacerbate the depression. And I know um, Denise Jacobs has spoken about this in the past, but, the, you know, there's a physiological reaction. You know, uh, it's the fight or flight. You check something, you get a sort of, a, a, I don't know, Claire will be able to correct me um, on the, the technical term, but I don't know if it's an adrenal or dopamine hit from getting you know an alert for attention because your body feels like it's in threat that releases endorphins which make you happy because you know you want to be calm in those situations but then you have a crash um you your your, your physiology your body and mind you know reject that um and they demand more of that and so when you're in a situation where you have a device um and it's the same you know with any kind of you know it's the same with substances same with alcohol same with caffeine the the, the res- you become addicted to the responses rather than the thing itself and those habits form around those so um, very much trying to break those habits, I think, is a really important thing. You, well, we've been talking about shutting off notifications and things, um, but over lunch when we were planning what we were going to talk about, something came up, an idea came up, which I thought was quite fascinating, actually, which is the fact that actually what we should be doing, potentially, is setting notifications to remind us to switch off. I know that's kind of contradictory. Um, but... In a way, we should be scheduling downtime in exactly the same way as we schedule work. Hmm. What's the same that Chris said about sort of, you know, sort of live should be a side, one of your main side projects. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, this, this comes back to stuff that we mentioned throughout the day about work-life balance. So, but because we are at, you know, the whole, it's not just us. The whole world now depends on the internet for their leisure time and their work time. But particularly for us where we're, Many of us are hobbyists. We've got into it through a love of, of unraveling problems. And that, we've kind of carried that love through, but it means that we sort of, you know, we do it for work and then we do it for pleasure outside of work, but then we also have recreational stuff. 
So, you know, you sort of your, your, your YouTube videos, which are sort of your different scales of pleasure on the internet, which aren't related solely about work. But, um, it becomes a point where there's very little break or escape yeah. from it. Tell me about your wife's birthday present for uh, this year. Well, that ties into what you were saying a minute ago, actually, um, about scheduling notifications. And I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, so I, I've had a really up and down year. Um, and I had a surprise birthday present for my wife and she, she wouldn't tell me what it was. She said, it's three days. It's an hour and a half away. Um, you're taking the car away, away from, you know, it's not me, me and the kids, just on your own. So I didn't know, really know, I just knew I had to take a Monday off work. Uh, turned up in the morning, uh, to his postcode, uh, I'll see Monday. And it was a weekend, a long weekend. And I wrote about it on the pastry box today as part of Geek Mental Health, um, week. Uh, it was a weekend at a monastery in Gloucestershire. Wow. Uh, and I'm not a religious man, um, by any stretch of the imagination, but it was such an eye-opening experience spending three days in the company of people that have a completely different attitude to self. And a lot of what depression is, is about how we view ourselves, um, uh, both in terms of how we frame our view of ourselves to other people, but how we place ourselves in society or in our industry um, in, the, in the context of what we're talking about today. Um, and to spend time with people that they, they surrender their possessions, they, they have a very strict schedule, which is solely devoted to prayer, and a lot of them change their name. Um, to, to a religious name. And, um, you know, they have a uniform. They don't have any personal clothing or personal identity through their clothing. Except for shoes, I discovered. Uh, when, when they're sitting down at mealtimes, you can kind of see some got trainers, some sandals. Old Did school. anyone have shoes as handsome as these? No, no. Although I did get a nice comment on my laces, not these ones, some other ones. Uh, <laughs> but, but, um, I mean, it's, it's, so that attitude to self was really eye-opening to me because so much of my anxieties and depression uh, evolve or involve how I view myself. So that was kind of sobering. Um, and the other thing was just the simplicity of life. You know, I've always, I've always found that get, I mean, I used to be an archaeologist who so used to spend a lot of time outside. Um, and what, since I've moved into our industry, it's times where I'm sort of away from a screen or back to nature, whether that's a beach or up in the mountains or something, I, I find it easy to switch off. And I found myself realizing it wasn't really getting back to nature. It was getting back to simplicity yeah. that was really having a positive effect on me. So going to spend time again with people that have nothing, um, but also it's very humbling because you don't have to pay to go there. You can make a donation, but and you can stay as long as you want. They're there uh, in their own words to sort of help you get in touch with something that's spiritually broken. The same way you know you go and convalesce if you've got consumption or something like that. But um, so the the idea of this was just basically getting back to simplicity, and I spent. Two and a half days, you know, meal times, the rest of the time you're in, you can sit in service if you want, you don't have to. Um, and I'm not saying everyone goes to monastery, but you need to find your own monastery, um, something that can get you away from a screen. Um, and just, I sat under a tree making spoons with, with an axe for three days, it was beautiful. Wow. Um, but it's come back to what you were saying earlier on, is actually what I have done since is I've set up reminders on my phone for the times that the monks go to services, just to, just to give me a mental nod. What do you do? You get up, walk around. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, very often I go, oh, cancel. But you know, it's just, it's just there as a like, <laughs> it's just there you as can't a reminder. Cancel a monk? I'm not cancelling the monk. It's not a mail order service. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> but it's just there as a reminder because they've all got different names. So like, they have like the the the, the second one of the days, nun and, and sex and things like that. Not sex, sex. And my uh, youngest got very confused by that. Um, 
I didn't spend the weekend having sex with Monk, that's all right. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, but no, but it was a very moving experience. And I, I think sort of that I, it was a bit extreme, but that idea of just, I suppose the depression is a selfish disease. I wrote about this today that you, it's, it's a selfish disease in the sense that everything you look at is revolves around the self. Um, and to counteract that, you kind of need to do two opposite things. One is you need to be more selfish. You need to actually make time for yourself and pay attention to some of your problems. And the other is you need to be a bit more selfless. You need to try and look at, have a bit of perspective about how, um, how the things you are doing is, is not just affecting other people. Like for me, as a, as a husband and a father, my depression has a profound influence on my family, um, which is one reason why one life packed me away for a few days. But, um, but yeah, but just try and sort of see things through the eyes of other people rather than those own distorting lenses that you tend to use. I was reminded of uh, an article, a post that Petra Gregorova wrote this week, and we've linked to on the Geek Mental Health website, um, geekmentalhealth.com, if anybody wants to go check out those articles. And she wrote, my itinerary is quite a busy one, and the whole time I was surrounded by many friends who don't get, I don't get to see all that often, which keeps me busy, I guess. You may be asking yourself, busy from what? Busy from paying attention to myself. And I think having that healing time is really, mm. is really important. And I love finding your own monastery. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's really, uh, I mean, you know, it's not going to be easy. You've got to find, you're going to have to confront some, really, I mean, one of the things, because I've got some time with sort of the father, um, figure of the monastery, and he was saying, you know, keep a journal, but talk to yourself. You know, really try and find time, whether it's writing it down or just driving in a car, talk to yourself. Um, and then try and respond, you know, just have a conversation with yourself. And that's not about, um, you know, you can do that for meditation, you can just do it through a diary. It's not about being schizophrenic. It's just about trying to untap a dialogue, because otherwise it's just your brain going over and over and over and over. I really annoy myself when I talk to myself. It's never a good thing. You're not the only one. <laughs> so I think it's time for us to move on. Okay, can I just can. say something? Yes, um, of course. It sort of occurred to me this morning, um, I've been watching the hashtag Geek Mental Health all week, and it's amazing not only what people have been writing, but the number of people that are writing tweets and messages saying, oh, I, I really want to contribute, but I don't feel I can, or um, I've read this post and it's been amazing and I just can't find the words to it. Just what I've been trying to do is periodically just check that and, and reply to people, complete strangers, and just say, you know, do you need any help? Uh, I'd really love to read what you're writing and just really try and sort of, it's a bit cheesy, but reach out to people, but encourage people because it's a very cathartic experience. Certainly I found it very cathartic getting my thoughts, the things that are buzzing around my head down, I'll say on the paper, but digital paper, but just getting it out of the head is really important. Okay. No, that's, that's excellent. So, um, you're going to stick around a little bit to answer some questions from the audience, uh, in a little while, but, um, can I just have a big round of applause for Chris Murphy and Tom? Take a minute just to. Uh... Whoa, here she goes. Then so my next guest is uh, a fabulous writer, speaker, and web content person. And I've wanted to get you on Unfinished Business for such a long time, but we never seem to. No, no, we've never managed it. So uh, please welcome Relly Annette Baker. You're not fucking kidding about the light, are you? It's really Shit, flipping really? strong. I know. I'm going to have to bleep that out. Just, just yeah, I'm going to stop now because otherwise, you're just gonna, no one's going to understand anything I say. Oops, I'm going to be good for now. 
I'm gonna pretend you're one of my children. I never really? one of my children. Mm, well, I, I'm, I, I thought I'd pretend to be Michael Parkinson, but I'm thinking more like Russell Harty. <laughs> Maybe it's a Russell Harty moment. <laughs> Perhaps. Right, Mrs. Merton, somebody commented earlier on, which I didn't think was very good. What would you like to ask me, Andy? I, as the resident crazy, by the way, as I should say, some people get really offended if you use the word crazy to describe them. Not me. I am genuinely actually a, a bit, yeah. Batshit? Yeah, batshit. That's even more beeping. <laughs> no, we can say, we can say bat on this podcast. We'll talk a bit about my special variety of batshit, I think. <laughs> you wrote. Yes. Uh, a moving and an incredibly memorable post, um, and I know that it was memorable because I can remember it, and I remember bugger all these days, it's an age thing, um, a few years ago about your postnatal depression diagnosis. Yes. And it was, I think, one of the first times that I'd read somebody in our industry writing about mental health and mental illness. Yeah. And it was certainly one of the things that kind of inspired me to think about doing the same kind of thing. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but also, what interested me was how you wrote about support um, and also how you were writing, we've spoken about this before, in terms of using therapy as a tool. Yes. I know people talk yeah. about medication a lot. Yeah. Um, but actually how, um, how you use therapy as a tool um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that we've both had experience of. Yes. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, and I'd like to talk about the impact that these issues can have on the people that look after us um, or actually work with us. Yeah. And some of the um, implications that uh, mental health issues, you know, have on employment and employers and co-workers and things like that. Okay, so I'll start with the, the post and what that was about. So, um uh, in 2006, I had my uh, first baby. Uh, I was 25 at the time. And um, I had really bad postnatal depression, uh, which, uh, if you don't know, and there's no particular reason you should, uh, is a condition that uh, women postnatally, that is after babies, um, can feel incredibly depressed and isolated for a number of reasons. First of all, the massive amount of hormones that are going through your system um, can cause real problems. For the first time in your life, you have the responsibility to keep another human alive uh, when you're absolutely shattered because they won't let you sleep. They don't seem to understand this symbiotic relationship <laughs> based on the fact that you need to be able to make good decisions and sleep is really useful for that. Uh, they also bleed you dry, uh, in some cases quite literally, if you're not having a great time breastfeeding. Uh, so there's lots of stuff goes on with that, and, and I very much experienced that, and I felt quite isolated uh, as well. I lived a reasonable way away from my family. I couldn't see them that often. My husband was going out to work because, you know, the other thing babies need is money. You'd be surprised how much money they need, considering how small they are. What did they spend it on? Pooping on shit. Oh, okay. That's another bleep. Yeah, pooping on a variety of different things. Mainly Would you like some water? Feel free. Yeah, that's great. Anything to go in it? Oh, no, wait. Um, Alcohol is actually a depressant, not a good plan. Don't do that if you're on tablets. Like, yeah. Still all sparkling, won't they? Oh, let's be racing. Go for the sparkling. Oh, it's all, it's all the way oh, right, over there. there. Um, so anyway, I, I, I had this bad time of postnatal depression, and, um, and I felt incredibly alone. I had had depression before, but this was the first time I had a formal diagnosis. And the reason I had a formal diagnosis is that I actually genuinely went a bit nuts. Uh, there was a moment where um, 
I became scared to answer the door. My husband would go to work. I was scared to go outside. That was a whole other, like, we're not doing that. But I then became scared to answer the door. Thank you very much. Uh, and so there was a moment where uh, the baby had just puked on me, because, again, that's what babies do. I was com- stark, completely naked, and I thought the only way this situation is going to get any better is if I take the one kilogram dairy milk bar that I have already stashed in the fridge for such situations and just eat it. That's what I'm going to do. And then the doorbell goes and the postman comes to bring me a parcel. So there I am in my kitchen, squatting behind my tiny fridge, naked with a puked on baby in one hand and a huge bar of dairy milk in the other. And he's calling through the letterbox going, are you in? Are you in? And I call out, no. (laughs) And it was at that point I thought, I actually can't bring up a baby hiding in my fridge with a bar of dairy milk naked. Probably actually need some help now. So I talked to my husband about it and he said, well, why don't we go to the doctors? And I said, well, you know, I guess so, if you can't. Can we buy tablets off the internet? Is that a thing we can do? Apparently not. It's not legal. Not a good idea. Um, so we went to the doctors. Uh, I talked to the doctor's carpet for about 20 minutes about how I was annoyed that the builders had broken our sink. And then I kind of looked up at, at the end of this ramble and he said, I think we might need to give you something to help you feel better. And I said, great. Now? Like an injection? And it goes away? And he said, no, it's a bit longer term than that. And that was the start of me getting help for a number of issues that I'd had for a number of years, but particularly related to the postnatal depression. The other thing I discovered after that is that as stupid as it felt to tell the dairy milk story, I felt a lot better just telling everyone. Just immediately, I was like, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to excuse anything I do. I'm currently a bit mental. Uh, I need, I actually need some help. I'm getting help, but I need some more help. And I just kind of rambled like this at baby groups and at different things. And I think even at clients at some point. I wouldn't recommend that one. Um, but I felt the more I talked about it, the more I could suddenly understand. And the more people said to me, oh, yeah, my mum had that or my sister had that. And then later when I talk more generally about depression, oh, my, you know, my brother had that or my husband has that or I have that. And there would be like this little depression bonding session. And people often think that depression is about crying and being upset in the room. And sometimes it is. But sometimes it's about being really angry with the world. And sometimes it's about using up all your energy to go out and have the best night and have a great time. And then you get home and you can't see anyone for three days because you've just used up everything. There you go, rambled. Okay. What do you want to know next? How incredible is that? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, so now I spend all my time trying to tell people and, and hold them by the hand and say, it, you know, it is, it's seriously okay. You will be all right. Should we talk about therapists? Let's talk about talking. Talk about health. Let's talk about yeah. talking. Because this is something that we've both had mm. experience of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that my experience was a good one. I know that obviously it's, it's different for, for different people. Yeah. Um, but I found that it helped me in ways that I cannot still understand. Yeah. Um, that throughout a year-long process of talking to somebody, um, I managed to almost, I describe it as like taking the, the, the cork out of a bottle mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and my experience was always that I, uh, I was experiencing life through a haze. I was... Um, to use the Don Draper quote, scratching up my life trying to get into it. <laughs> and 
through that process of therapy, I've managed to kind of break through that. And it had a, a strange experience. You know, I would, I would go to, to talk to the therapist and go home and say, yeah, that was okay. You know, how was that? How was your day, dear? Yeah. No, it was fine. It was, it was a decent session. And I would say no more. Yeah. And then a week, two weeks, three weeks later, you'd be driving down the, down the, the dual carriageway and you burst into tears for a reason that you had no idea why. Yeah. Um, and through that process, you know, you come out and you think, wow, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a changed, changed geezer mm-hmm. because of that. Um, and I, and I would recommend it to anyone who, if I felt that it was going to help them. So I, I recommend therapy with some caveats. Um, one, uh, there are different types of therapies available. A lot of them work well, at least initially in combination with medication if you are uh, suffering from clinical depression or, and, or other uh, mental. I mean, we talk mainly about depression, but there is a whole range of things mm. that require different treatments. Um, uh, also, therapy is not the only answer, and there are different types of therapy. So, uh, in this country, the NHS will generally recommend you um, and sign you up for either a kind of group therapy session, which is my idea of hell. Yeah, mine too. Uh, but some people genuinely find it really useful. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are isolated with depression and finding other people that have it and having a contact group is really useful if you have no other contact. But I found that the internet helped with that. I could go find stuff out that way. Um, they also like you to try cognitive behavioral therapy, which there are pros and cons for. But essentially, it's the cheapest way for the NHS to provide you therapy, so it's definitely the one that they will try first. Uh, I didn't really like cognitive behavioural therapy. I spent way too much time thinking about what I did already without any more, but I do know people have had real success with it. In the end, I ended up um, having a combination of um, like psychoanalytical stuff, uh, and then when I found that was getting a bit creepy, I can stop for a while, and then I picked up with a different therapist. Um, because the other thing is that the, the first therapist you meet might not necessarily be the therapist for you. Um, it's a bit like taking quotes for a builder. It's a bit weird. You kind of have to go and check them out and then see, see if they, you know, tell them your problems and see if they suck air through their teeth as to whether they can fix it or not. I don't know. Could be Christmas, that one. Um, and, and so the first therapist I saw, I was referred to on the NHS. Uh, so I was there, like, completely broken, eight-week-old baby, husband who was incredibly worried about it. My husband it was a superstar through this. Uh, you know, he'd never had a baby before either. You know, that's, you know, one of his good points at the time. I wish he had had one now. I mean, it would have made things easier. But at the time, you know, the fact that he was faithful and loving them was great. Um, but so we're there in this therapy session that I've been referred to. And I've taken the baby with me because I'm still feeding the baby. And I turn up and I speak to the therapist. And the therapist is a guy of, I don't know, about 60 or so. Um, and he was really confused as to why I brought my baby and husband to the session. And I was like, well, because... The baby's still feeding every hour at this point, and I haven't slept, and I don't know what to do to fix that, so the baby's with me for now. And the session kind of ticked by for half an hour, and it ended with him saying, I was probably a bit worried because I was tired, and I should probably try and get some more sleep. And I just kind of went, do you remember that 30 minutes ago, I mentioned the eight-week-old baby that's feeding every hour? How am I going to get more sleep? And his suggestion was my husband should have the baby for a while. As if we hadn't thought of that. 
And so I just thought, oh God, therapy's awful. And I didn't try again for another few months until I spoke to a health visitor who then said, well, you know, there are other services that you just got referred to one that was available, but we can try other ones. And so I did get more help and then eventually I ended up going private. And there is something to be said about that, except that it costs a real, really large amount of money. And there are loads of people who cannot access it. So as far as possible, which brings me back to nothing I want to talk about, companies, organizations, should be helping support mental health. Agencies who are spending pots of money on fancy chairs so that you're sat right like this could put a similar amount of money into making sure that you have access to mental health, even if that's just a phone line that you can call and speak to um, privately without you having to go via HR or get a referral, just so that you can make that initial contact. If, if more places in the UK did that and we did less relying on the NHS, which is currently creaking under the weight of a higher rate of diagnosis and a lower rate of funding, as with everything, then people will do better work at work. If things are worrying them at home, they don't go, oh, well, you know, it's nine till five, I should probably clock off and not worry about that till five past five on my drive home. It will worry them during the day. If you can give them access to help, that's something that you know, you can go back to your companies and say, please, can we maybe think about implementing something like this to help people? Uh, you know, a private, confidential way of making that initial contact. Because sometimes just having a couple of sessions of talking through stuff with someone is enough to help you see a path ahead without spiraling down. And it's the spiraling effect that we're missing at the moment. The way the NHS works is that it can only really help you if you reach crisis points. Um, so with me, I went to the most ineffectual therapist available because he was cheap, apparently. And it took, honestly, me very, I, I escaped being put on a ward with my baby for three months by, by this, because my husband promised to basically take me home and look after me and do everything until I was able to do so. It shouldn't have taken me getting to that crisis point, but it does, because that's how you get a referral. Not good news if you want to keep your employers in business. I hate to interrupt you. Yeah, I mean, I, we could people just do. people would just go on forever with me. We, go no, on, get we, we, on. we could talk about Please. this. <laughs> Please for a get long someone time. else on. We, we we really could, but I think that we should talk to an actual therapist. Yeah, an actual expert would be really helpful. It would. <laughs> also, can I just say big big shout out to Team Steep stayed all the way through, even though we're running a bit late. You came to learn about this because it's so easy to go. This won't bother me. I don't. You know, mental health affects someone you know. If it's not you. Someone in this room is there going, I really don't want to hear about this, but I really need to. So big thumbs up to you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Shall we, um, mm -hmm. shall we, shall we introduce our next guest? Because I think it's really important to stress that, you know, again, we are not, um, mental health professionals. No. Um, but, but you are. Our next guest is, um, and she's editor of counseling and psychotherapy research, That's which, right. Which I have on subscription. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Along with Plastics and Rubber Weekly. Um, counselor and lecturer. This sounds really grand. Lecturer in... So I have to look down to read this. Psychodynamic counselling at the University of Leicester, which is where my son went. Yes, yeah. Um, Dr. Claire Simmons. <laughs> and I did say your name right this time. You did, yes. I mean, you know, I have lots of different versions of how it's pronounced, so whatever. So... The Geek Mental Help website this week has been taking submissions. If somebody wants to write something, you can um, 
do a pull request. I don't really know what that means, but I'm told it's how people update websites these days. Um, so that we can add a link to, uh, to an article or a blog post or something, um, that people are sharing. And been doing that all week and there's been an interesting divide I've seen between posts that are about some of the things that we talked about this evening. Um, the effects of stress or burnout or constant demands on our attention and, um, separately about, um, trauma or mental illness. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking about really the, the distinction perhaps between issues that are related to stress or burnout or trauma of some sort and uh, bipolar disorders or other types of depression. Um, so I want to talk about that, mm -hmm. if you can kind of clarify some of that a little bit. Um, we'll see. Possibly. <laughs> um, and I want to talk really about what you feel as somebody that's not in our industry um, about what our industry does to us or potentially does to us um, as people who work within it. So let's start talking about that distinction then um, between burnout on one hand mm. and, and depression, let's say, on another. Mm. Well, I, I guess, I mean, if you look at those... Um, Would you like some water? Uh, yeah, I'd love some fizzy water as well, please. Thank you. Um, those blog posts, you say, th there's, there's quite striking differences. So you can see the posts where people are talking about um, psychiatric illness, diagnosed illness, and uh, quite, um, you, you're talking about um, uh, conditions that they will often be having to kind of manage and work with once they've got the diagnosis you know, throughout their lives, potentially. Um, and on the other side, you're talking, um, there are posts there, and a lot of people have been contributing and talking about um, the kind of the, the acute and kind of ongoing effects on their mental health of life or the industry that they work in and how that can make them ill, very stressed, burnt out, and that that might be something that could also spiral, as Riley was talking about, into something much more severe, or that actually with, uh, if it's tackled early on, could be prevented from going into the spiral. Um, but it's something, I think, for me, that there's, there is a real difference between illness, mental illness, and mental um, uh, health difficulties, right. um, and that um, anybody might be prone to or have um, an underlying uh, problem that could become a mental illness, um, but just as in physical health, um, you know, we might have you know, a certain proportion of the population who can become very serious ill, heart disease, whatever, there are also... Uh, a great many people who don't have those issues, but who need to uh, maintain and manage and look after their physical health. And if they don't, they'll get more colds and they'll get flu and all those sorts of things. And it's it's that sort of distinction. I think one of the the problems again around the mental health issues as opposed to illness is that because there's a lot of um, stigma and uh, and then fear around uh, mental illness and being labelled mad or being worried about kind of losing your mind and somehow being out of control, then actually at the milder end of the spectrum, it's much harder to acknowledge that things might be starting to get problematic because if I'm a bit stressed and I'm feeling a bit burnt out and maybe I could do something, actually if I acknowledge that, does it mean I'm going to end up down this spiral, I'm going to be mad, everybody's going to think, let's not go near this person. I know that the stereotypical geek... And I, I did think long and hard about whether or not to include that in the kind of title of the project. Um, 
and we'll come on to kind of the wideness of that in a minute. But I know that stereotypical geek is exactly that. You know, it's a stereotype, I think. But our industry, it does involve a lot of um, sitting in an expensive chair sometimes. Um, a lot of solitary working, deep thinking. You know, we make things with our minds, really. Um, a lot of intense focus on things, whether we're designing or we're developing or we're, or we're programming. Do you think that this industry attracts people that are potentially prone to mental health issues? Um, you know, or are we attracted to the industry because, you know, we, we potentially have them? I, I think that um, the question is prompted by the fact that um, you're having these events and there's been more and more kind of conversation in the last year, 18 months about um, people in your industry having mental health problems. Um, and uh, for me, that kind of goes back to what Chris Murphy was saying about you're, you're an industry that shares a lot. Um, and actually, I think that there's, as, as far as I've been able to ascertain, there's no research that suggests that um, more people in your industry are, are getting mental illness than in the UK as a whole. It happens to be um, something that affects a wide number of people. You know, one in four people in the UK in this year will be affected by mental illness in some way or another. But I think what happens is that it may be that you're starting to see more of that. It's starting to come to the surface a bit more in your industry um, because of this um, kind of community of sharing and uh, in a way that the fact that there's taboo around mental illness means that there's perhaps less of that more generally. But I think also it, it is true to say that, of course, there are specific things about the nature of your work that can um, in themselves be problematic for our mental health. So a constant change, things about long hours, not necessarily actually seeing people face to face. I mean, I guess it's very possible you, know, you can go for days or weeks without actually making contact with people, except through emails. And, and not that that isn't contact and you know, can't be meaningful, but you know, there's a lot of possibility to isolate yourself. And so I think there's a lot within the industry that you potentially, although it can also be helpful, can um, exacerbate um, problems. So again, can start, if you're at the edge of that spiral, can really make it very easy for you to really start yeah. to uh, slide down it. I think that, as we said before, it's important to remember that you know, the mental health, mental illness issues extend way beyond our industry. And I know when we sort of started talking about this project that some people go, well, you know, don't, don't label it geek because, you know, or web or something like that because, you know, there are plumbers and architects and policemen and... Uh, no, and, we're all uh, special snowflakes. <laughs> well, you are. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> Not the way you think. Um, so do we need to really highlight just how normal, routine mental health issues are, really? I mean, one in four is quite a, quite a staggering yeah. statistic. Yeah, you said there were what, around about 400 people here, so yeah. that's 100 people in the room over the course of the year. Um, so High five to all of you. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a prediction, but <laughs> choose who it's going to be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think um, that there's something very valuable about, um, I mean, I think, again, things that you were saying really about, uh, actually, if you can kind of open the door and say, this is quite ordinary. And you can make links 
with people who maybe not only have sort of similar experiences, but, but understand the territory that you're in as well, then actually I think that's um, very valuable also from the point of view of trying to prevent some of these things happening in, in the longer term. Um, you know, you, of course you can make connections and you, you can talk with people from all sorts of other kind of industries, but actually to really understand the kinds of things that in your industry will contribute, well, you've got that sharing um, possibility already. I think it's very useful um, to, to, to make it something that's kind of on the agenda and thought about in the same way when we're talking over lunch as, you know, everybody knows that if you're going to be physically healthy, you shouldn't eat takeaway every day. And you need to... Really? Eat, oh, sorry, that news to people. <laughs> Made a huge assumption there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some fruit and vegetables in your diet is probably quite good. And, and I think, you know, the equivalent of fruit and vegetables in your emotional and mental diet is also something to think about. And what would they look like? Well, it's going to be different from for, for lots of different people, but I think things like, I mean, Cole was talking about switching off mm-hmm. um, and you know, making sure that you've got time away from the technology. I think an idea of connecting face-to-face with people and you know, the, the family and meeting with people, physical, maintaining your physical health actually is very important, having exercise. Um, but I think that's most importantly, there's something about... Um, if you know to prioritise your mental and emotional health, then you've got the opportunity, I think, to um, to experiment and find out what works with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you, you've said a couple of times you're not mental health professionals. Fine, you are full time human beings, and you um, <laughs> you know you you experience what is helpful for you and what isn't, and part of the uh, part of what will help you is also just paying attention to that. Which for me, when you were talking about therapies, is some of what I kind of understood. Um, you, you experienced that there was something about uncorking that pop bottle mm. and getting in touch with what was inside and paying attention to it, which then means you can know how to address it. You can, you know, if you are more in touch with some of the stresses that you feel. You can be more in touch with what, what triggers it. You can um, limit that and find other ways of being with it. And there are lots and lots of practical resources as well with ideas about that. I mean, the, the talk I gave in Milton Keynes, when I post the slide, there are, I put a lot of links to a lot of organisations that have information with practical strategies for things that you can do. Um, because it isn't a one-size-fits-all thing. We'll make sure that all of that stuff's available on the website too. So that leads on to really the final question that I have is... What is the next step? We've seen this kind of tremendous outpouring of support and sharing this week. And I've been, you know, surprised actually and humbled by how much people have contributed and, you know, the reaction to that. So, you know, one of the questions that we've been having is, you know, what would be the next step? And if I suppose before we get to that is, does there have to be a next step? Can this just be it? Um, can the outcome of this week just be that we carry on having conversations about this stuff in the open? Well, I mean, I was certainly going to say, if, if um, you know, as an outsider, my recommendation, if you like, for your next step would be to keep the conversation alive and that that actually is going to be the most powerful way of making sure that people attend to their mental and emotional health needs, you know, remembering that it is a priority. Um, you know, using the you know, uh, reminders, uh, you know, to turn off, turn things off, and to look after yourself. Um, I, one of the things I said when I was in Milton Keynes is that it's it, it's important that we treat our mental health in a way that's about um, snacking and grazing regularly rather than binging. 
Um, and I think sort of cultivating a habit, a regular habit that doesn't have to involve, you know, I've got to take an hour and a half off during my lunch hour during the day, which is not going to be sustainable for most people. But actually, you know, is there a way I can build in small things regularly? And, um, you know, like for my physical health, I go to the gym and I exercise two or three times a week. And, um, you know, what's my emo- emotional equivalent of that? And the way to do that, I think, is, yeah, to keep the issue alive as a conversation. And I think, you know, there's 400 designers and developers and engineers in the audience and many, many, many more out there. We should be able to find a way that we can design and develop and engineer some way of keeping these kind of conversations going. So There's also taking them back to your place of work and being aware. There's that expression that... Um, you know, be kind because everyone is fighting a hard fight. You don't really necessarily know what's going on in other people's heads. And, and I've really appreciated it in the times where people have been nice and kind to me when I struggled. A part of that is me being able to say, I'm struggling, please help. But them also responding as well. And one of the things I often ask when I go join projects is, and especially when they're reasonably big teams, like what contingency do you have built in when people are sick and that kind of stuff? And it's just, I mean, and most project managers know as soon as you get to a team of twelve, you have to account for a month holiday for every single person. So that's someone missing from your team pretty much all the time. And how do you account for that? And there's also, you know, how do you give people permission to say, I really need to not do this right now and come back, and to be able to talk about the sort of policies and things in place that there need to be for people to feel comfortable to be able to say that. Um, a lot of startups tend to work on a big burnout concept, like they've got this big deadline they need to get to. And that's kind of sustainable for a bit. And, you know, lots of people can live off the rush for a while. But actually a constant grind of that, which I, we see more and more going from agencies going from one project to another, where you're constantly jumping through that stuff, doesn't give people... I mean, I find people who struggle to actually take their allotted amount of holiday, let alone being able to be sick. So that's another conversation we really need to have as an industry is what are we actually throwing away in the effort to have this constantly on the go, constantly updating? No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. So I think that we need to kind of wrap up this segment if we can. So I want to say thank you to you two, Claire, really, for, and to Christopher and, uh, and to Cole for talking about this today. Um, I'm going to do the whole, I'm going to do the, the kind of podcast outro thing that I have to do for the people listening. So I know this isn't as good as something on the BBC. Are there, there, there dance moves that go with that? There are, there are fortunately no dance moves that accompany this. But I, <laughs> oh my goodness. Not. Right, so. I remember the blockbuster dance. <laughs> I'm not even going to do it in my Power Rangers costume. Um, <laughs> which is what I normally wear when I record the podcast. I don't normally tell people that. So I need to just basically say that if people have got questions or suggestions or topics that they want to raise about this or any other kind of issues, um, they can message Unfinished Business on Twitter at UnfinishedBZ, or they can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Do I sound like a radio announcer here? The man your man could smell like. <laughs> And I just want to say an enormous thank you. Please do the entire outro in there. All your sponsors, all your thank yous in that voice, otherwise... There, there are no sponsors. I want to say an enormous thank you <laughs> to everyone who's... I can't do it. Who's <laughs> contributed this week, everyone who's tweeted or used the hashtag written, spoken, podcast, made events like this one, meeting, meeting, well, Milton Keynes Geek Night, that's not the easiest thing to say, made those things possible.
I want to think that this conversation's only just begun. So thank you very much for doing that. Can I have a round of applause for everybody? Who's